Genesis chapter 43. Actually, we're going to be looking at chapters 43 and 44 this morning. It's a single story. I think it makes sense for us to do so. Uh, but then starting next Sunday, we're going to take a little break from Genesis. It's a little bit of a cliffhanger, uh, as you're going to see. We'll pick up in chapter 45 in August. But the pastors will be preaching on the fruit of the Spirit uh, from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Each of us uh, taking one of the virtues that the Spirit produces in our hearts and in our characters. I think this is really timely for us, and I'm so looking forward uh, to hearing what each pastor does uh, with each of the fruit of the Spirit. So that begins next week, but this morning we come uh, and look at chapters 43 and 44, and in many ways we're seeing the same kind of transformation uh, in, in Jacob, excuse me, in Judah and his brothers that that we hope to see in ourselves uh, by the power of the Spirit. How is it that these men have changed so radically is what we're going to see. Well, ultimately, it's the work of God's grace in them in the same way that it's the work of God's grace in us that changes us or transforms us from our past to our future selves, uh, conforming us to Christ's own image. In order to see that, though, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people this morning, desiring to hear a word from the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, come, we pray. Uh, open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. And grant us your mercy and grace. Change us, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read the, the first 15 verses of chapter 43, and then the last 16 verses of chapter 44 which really trace out Judah's story. So chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless my brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little bulb and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio notes, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, 
I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now let's go over to chapter 44, verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a, younger bro a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with, she with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So most of you by now, I trust, know the amazing story of Louis Zamperini that was told in Laura Hillebrand's book, Unbroken, and then depicted in the 2014 movie that was directed by Angelina Jolie. But, but if you've seen the movie and also read the book, you know how differently the movie and the book actually tell his story. The, the key moment in the movie depicts how unbroken Zepperini remained in the Japanese prison camps. Towards the end of the movie, he's relocated to the northern part of Japan, only to discover that his longtime uh, tormentor, the bird, the bird, Corporal uh, Wanatabi, was there. And Wanatabi took out his sadistic anger on Zamperini by forcing him to, to hold a large wooden beam over his head. If Zamperini were to drop the beam, he would be struck. And for 37 minutes in the movie, Louis Zamperini holds that beam over his head. It's the moment, the film appears to claim, that shows Louis was in fact unbroken. But if you've read the book, you actually know that Louis Zamperini was profoundly broken, and especially broken 
uh, by his service in World War II, when he returned back home to Southern California after the war, he struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder, he struggled with anger and rage, he struggled with alcoholism, and if he didn't change, if something didn't change, he would in fact destroy himself. Uh, the book tells you quite clearly he was broken and he needed to be transformed. Of course, Laura Hillebrand's book tells you how he's changed. God changes him. One night at a Billy Graham crusade, Louis Zamperini heard the gospel clearly preached and responded to, to the invitation to receive Christ as his Savior and Lord, and God changed him changed him radically. How do we know? We know because of his lifetime, another 50 or 60 years beyond that moment, where he, he professed love for God, but also love for others. His summer camps that he ran for angry uh, young men that were, that were harmed, just like he had been, uh, pursuing those who, who had harmed him, especially the birds, seeking to forgive Corporal Wanatami as well as this change of character that people noted at First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood. Louis Zamperini's life was, was proof. It was the most powerful apologetic that one could actually give for the truth of the gospel and the power of God to change the lives of those who trust in him. It's, it's that kind of transformation, that kind of change, that, that only God can work. But it happens not just in individual lives today. That's actually what we see here in Genesis chapter 43 and 44. Because these brothers, as, as seen in Judah, their representative, Judah in, this, in these two chapters very much acts on behalf of his brothers in the same way that the apostle Peter will act on behalf of the, of the apostles throughout the gospels. So we see in Judah the change that God can work the change that actually can happen, not by, by lifting ourselves up by our own bootstraps, not by exerting our own wills, not by applying our intelligence to the problems that face us. No, the reason why Judah and his brothers change so that they are able to act the way they do in chapters 43 and 44 is because God does it. And friends, if God can change Judah and his brothers, and if God can change Louis Zamperini, he can change you. He can transform you. No matter what your past has been, God can change you. After all, Judah's past is nothing to write home about. We've seen him now a couple of times already in this, this section of Genesis that began back in chapter 37. There in chapter 37, you might remember as Joseph comes to his brothers and his brothers out of hatred decide to throw him in a pit. Some want to kill him. It's actually Judah who tells his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother and our own flesh. Now, Undoubtedly, Judah said this with a kind of mocking tone, but, but with that mocking tone and, and even the words themselves, you see how evil his heart really is. This man in the pit that he's talking about selling is his brother. Twice he tells you that. This is our brother, our brother, our own flesh and blood. Exactly, Judah. 
How can you sell your own flesh and blood into slavery? Knowing that you will never see him again. Knowing that it's quite likely that he will die in Egypt. How evil that is. How, how sinful, how broken that is. And then if we've missed Judah's character in chapter 37, we see it quite clearly in the next chapter. In Genesis chapter 38, we saw, didn't we? How sensual and senseless Judah was. How, how sensual he was that he couldn't even control his sexual appetites. He had to reach out for a Canaanite woman to marry. And then after she dies, he, he goes quickly to a temple prostitute who ends up being his own daughter-in-law. And how, and how senseless he was. How, how callous he was. The unfeeling when, when God strikes his two of his sons dead because of how evil they were. And he doesn't even mourn. Doesn't, doesn't rip his clothes, doesn't seem to grieve. That, that's what Judah was like. When you, when you think about Judah and the way we've seen him thus far in chapters 37 and 38, you would see him as one beyond feeling, as evil, as sensual, as callous, as insensitive. Like some of you were. Some of you can tell a story, can't you? Of how before Jesus Christ found you, when you kind of go over your past, you can see how, how evil your heart was. How insensitive you were, how callous, how sensual, how senseless. Some of you can tell stories. Others of you perhaps have never plumbed the depth of, of what your heart is like. But the Apostle Paul teaches us that every sinner is exactly this way whether we know it or not. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says that, that sinners are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. That's, that's what we are apart from Jesus Christ. That's what some of you can testify to if, is in your past. Just like Judah. But something's changed. Something's changed in Judah. He seems different now here in the present time. We read the first 10 verses of chapter 43. And we heard how Jacob is telling his sons to go buy food. And, and Judah's remonstrating with him and telling him that the man, of course he doesn't know that's Joseph, the man said, you can't see me unless you bring Benjamin. Jacob doesn't want to let him go. But then, then Judah, as we heard, says this, chapter 43, verse 8, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. I will be a surety. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand... You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. I mean, when we hear Judah speak up, we expect the worst, don't we? After all, when he speaks, he speaks of abandoning his own flesh and blood, selling him into slavery. When he speaks, we, we expect him to, to drive out in sensuality and senselessness. But here... Here we hear him offer himself as a surety for Benjamin's life, a pledge of safety 
This is so different from what Reuben had said at the end of the last chapter. Reuben had offered to kill his own two sons if he didn't bring Benjamin back. But, but Judah says, I myself will be responsible for his safety. You can hold me personally responsible. I will bear the blame before you all my life. Now listen, this is Judah. This is the one who sold Joseph. This is the one who lied to his father. This is the one who's wrestled with guilt and shame over that deception, who's borne this unacknowledged guilt before his father for at least 15 years. And now here he is. Something's happened because he's saying, my life for his. My life for his. I'll be the substitute. I'll bear the wrath. I'll bear the blame. My life for his. Before, Benjamin was a type of evil. If you wanted to see what evil looked like, you could look at Judah and say, oh, that's what it looks like. Someone who would sell his own brother. Someone who would go into a prostitute. Someone who didn't even weep when his sons were killed. But now, Judah's a type of Christ. Because, of course, what would Judah's later descendant do? What would Jesus say? My life for yours. My life for yours. I'll bear the Father's blame. I'll bear his wrath. I'll bear his curse. I'll be your substitute. My life for yours. I'll be your surety. What a change has been made in Judah to go from a type of evil to a type of Christ. So much so that we are taught to sing in the famous words from Charles Wesley. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. My surety. Where did Charles Wesley get that language? Right here. Right here from Judah. And so you begin to see the change, the transformation that's been made in Judah. So that now he's offering himself as a surety. And that change is going to bear through a number of shocks, both to Judah's own system, but, but also to the brothers. As the story unfolds, there's actually three separate shocks that come to them that, that would serve to disorient them normally. Uh, the first shock is when they arrive to... To Egypt and they're actually invited into the prime minister's home as a guest you see in chapter 43 beginning in verse 16 when Joseph saw Benjamin with them he said to the steward of his house bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that, that we were brought in so that he might assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. Of course, the prime minister of Egypt probably didn't care much about their donkeys. And yet it clearly is a shock to their system, isn't it? It's disorienting to be brought into the prime minister's home. What's going on? Are they going to fall upon one another? Is it going to be every man to, for themselves? The second shock comes when they speak to the steward. They tell the steward about the, the money that they found in the sacks and they actually brought it and they want to return the money back to him. And what is it that the steward says? He says in verse 23, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father 
has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and washed, they washed their feet and we had given them their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. Your father's God gave you that money back? What does that mean? You mean you received the money but you put it back? What's going on? It's another shock. It serves to disorient them. What's going to happen? Then the third shock comes shortly after that. As Joseph comes, they're seated at this feast that he's prepared for them. And they realize that they're actually seated in birth order. Chapter 43, verse 31. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. They served him by himself and they by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him. The firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the youth and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as many as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So these three shocks served to disorient them. They could have forgotten to be on their best behavior. If this was simply some kind of external change, some kind of, some kind of uh, thing that they've worked up, the, these shocks could have forced them back to their old muscle memory. Y you know muscle memory, right? When you're trying to learn a new thing, whether it's a new golf swing or a new set of dance steps or whatever the new thing might be, and as you're trying to learn that new thing, your, your muscles want to go back to the old way of doing, especially when the pressure's on. Here, the pressure's on. The shocks have come, and, and the temptation is to revert to their old muscle memory, to their anger and rage, to their bitterness, to their divisiveness, every man for themselves. But they don't, do they? No, in the midst of this, this test, there's proof of the transformation that God has worked. Well, it's going to be true for Judah's brothers, but listen, that's true for you, me, you and me as well. How is it that you and I know that we've been changed? How do we know that there's... That the transformation has taken place in our character. Well, it's when the test comes, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to, to believe that, that we've changed when we're here at church. It's easy to believe that we've been transformed when we, when we sing the hymns, when we study our Bibles, and we enjoy fellowship with one another. On a Sunday morning, when we're here at church, it's easy to think, yeah, I've changed. But listen... You do know, right, that, that the unregenerate can love to sing hymns. Unconverted people can love to study the Bible, learn all sorts of new things, stock their heads full of, of truth, truths about the Bible. Unregenerate people, unchanged people can love to be with other people, to fellowship with others. Now, it's not on Sunday morning when you're singing the hymns and studying the Bible and enjoying fellowship with one another that you can believe that you've changed. It's actually when the pressure comes. It's when the test comes that you begin to see the proof. Has God changed me? Has God transformed me? Is my character different? Do I respond differently in the moment? That's, that's the proof we need to be looking for. It's in the midst of the test. Joseph actually has a task for his brothers. It's not just when they're fellowshipping around the table. 
uh, that he's actually gauging whether they've changed. No, it's, it's this test that he gives them in the first verses of chapter 44. Uh, he says in chapter 44, verse 1, to his steward, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Which, of, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now the thing to notice here is that Joseph has actually replicated as close as he can the situation that he faced with his brothers. Remember? What will we gain if we kill our brother? What will we gain if our brother dies? Let's sell him into slavery. That way we're not guilty for the blood of our brother. It's the same test. Benjamin's not going to die. Benjamin is going to be taken into slavery. Will they abandon Benjamin into slavery as they abandoned Joseph to slavery by selling him to the Ishmaelites? That's the test. Have the brothers really changed? Will it be every man for themselves? Will they look out for number one and say, whew, we escaped a close one. Sorry, Benjamin, we're heading back to dad. Are they really, in fact, transformed? Well, their initial response tells you. Did you see it? Chapter 44, verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Before, the only person who tore his clothes over Joseph being sold into slavery was who? You remember? Ben, it was, was Jacob. When Jacob gets the, the news that Joseph was no more, he tears his clothes. But now, all the brothers do it. They're all grieved. There's all, they all experience sorrow and loss. It's the beginning of the evidence. They've changed. But, but you hear more of the transformation that's been worked in verse 14. When Judah... Uh, responds after Joseph confronts them. In verse 16, Judah says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Did you hear the change? Judah says, on behalf of the brothers, we're all going to be your slaves. Not just Benjamin. We're, we are all offering ourselves to you. Why? Because God has uncovered your servant's guilt. He didn't know. Judah didn't. But he was telling Joseph, yes, we recognize we sinned against you. But whether wittingly or unwittingly, that's exactly what has happened. And when Joseph protests about the brothers, all of them remaining in slavery, that's when Judah gives the speech that we read together. 
And the most important words of it are found towards the end in, in chapter 44, verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the, in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant, as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? What do you hear there? You hear proof. Two lines of proof. First, you hear love for the father. Before Judah and the brothers lied to their father, perhaps out of hatred because of the way their father had treated Joseph as the favorite, but now, now they were reconciled to his love for Benjamin. They were reconciled to his lost love for Joseph. Perhaps the guilt that they had borne for 15 years changed their perspective. Perhaps it was having their own children that changed their perspective. But regardless, here you hear in Judah's words, love for the father. But you also hear here, love for their brother. I mean, they're willing to give themselves in place of Benjamin. It was Judah who said, my life for his but all the brothers feel the same way. They all feel the same way, the other nine. They're willing to give themselves for the brother, out of love for the brothers. Don't you hear? This isn't just proof of, of Judah and the brothers' change. It's actually the proof you should look to. How do you know that you've been changed? How do you know that God has transformed you? Love for the Father. And love for our brothers and sisters. When the pressure is on. When shocks come. When things get disorienting. When we don't know which side is up. When we're struggling to make sense of what's going on in our personal worlds and in our larger worlds. It's in those, in those times that our muscle memory shows. Our character shows love for the Father. And love for our brothers. I mean that's what the Apostle John tells us in his first letter. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Don't you hear? When grace transforms us, it doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter how the pressure comes. We're not going to default to the old muscle memory of the past. We're not going to default to anger and rage, to intimidation and control. We're not going to default to gossip and slander. We're not going to stick each other in the back. No. And when the pressure comes because God has changed us, love for the Father who is, who's given his own son to be our surety and love for one another. That's the proof that God has changed us. And how, how does that change happen? Does it happen by our own willpower? Does it happen because our intelligence is applied to the problem? No. No, God changes us, and he changes us ultimately through the power of the cross. And ironically, the movie poster from the movie Unbroken actually showed us that. I, I don't know if you remember the movie poster, 
it actually memorialized that key scene that I mentioned earlier. Louis Zamperini holding the beam over his head. But if you didn't know the story, if you didn't know how this would be depicted, if you were walking up to the Malco Paradiso from the parking lot and you could just see the poster, not know what it referred to, you, do you know what you would actually see? You would see a man in the form of a cross, which I think is the real point of the book and the movie. But even more, it's the real point of this gospel of God contained in Holy Scripture. It's only by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that any of us can change, that any of us are transformed. Any of us can leave our past behind and walk into a new way of being that is superintended by Christ, by his spirit. Perhaps you're here this morning and you actually, you, you realize that over the past weeks and months, as the pressure has been on, your character has been shown to be less than what you thought it to be. Don't sit there in guilt and shame this morning. Run to Jesus Christ. Run to him. Plead the merits of his blood. Plead his righteousness. Run to him and say, Jesus, change me. Because Jesus loves to change broken men and women. It is his transforming grace after all. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come to you as your people confessing that we have failed to love you and our neighbor. And we failed to love you in things we have done and things we have left undone. Lord, grant us your mercy. Grant us your grace, your favor to forgive us and your power to change us. And may we delight this morning in the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Do your work in our hearts and lives, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals and let's